Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 198 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Jeffrey Klein. He received his bachelor's in psychology from Nipissing University in North Bay, Ontario, Canada, and completed his PhD as an NSERC Centennial Scholar at the University of Illinois in 1997. He was a Canadian Institute of Health Research Fellow during his postdoctoral training in neurophysiology at the Kansas University Medical Center. And in 1998, he joined the faculty at the Canadian Center for Behavioral Neuroscience in Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada, as a Canadian Research Chair and an Alberta Medical Research Scholar. After a clinical research fellowship at the University of California, Irvine Medical Center in 2004, he joined the Department of Neuroscience at the University of Florida's McKnight Brain Institute and was an assistant director at the Brain Rehabilitation Research Center at the Gainesville VA Hospital in 2005. In 2011, he joined the School of Biological and Health Systems Engineering at Arizona State University as the undergraduate program chair. In 2017, he was appointed the SBHSE associate director. Dr. Klein's research has been centered around understanding the relationship between brain plasticity and both learning in the intact nervous system and relearning in the compromised nervous system. His work has focused on identifying the fundamental behavioral and neural signals that drive brain plasticity, specifically within the motor cortex. The goal of his research group and that of many others is to develop neurobiologically informed therapies to improve the quality of life of individuals suffering from neurological disease and disorders. Integrating both animal models and clinical subjects, his work has investigated the viability of multiple plasticity promoting adjuvant therapies. These interventions have included pharmacological manipulations as well as cranial nerve stimulation and cortical stimulation for improving motor function after stroke, TBI, and Parkinson's disease. In addition to studying the efficacy of adjuvant therapies, his work has also begun to examine the role of genomics in guiding the efficacy of these putative therapies. So, I thought of shortening that bio, but the more I read it, I wanted you all to hear that because <laughs> I just love and respect so much of what Dr. Klein has done in his work. Um, and I just think it's so fascinating to hear of people's journeys and how they came to know about the field of dysphagia and how they're contributing to it. So um, I just wanted to read that whole thing. And thank you, Dr. Klein, for coming on and doing this episode. I enjoy this one um, so, so much. And I know his work has made such a lasting impact on my work and my practice. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MetaSLP Collective. 
This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Trisha. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for offering the, the yeah. chance to come talk. Yes, I'm just I'm just ecstatic to have you on today. And I know um, so many of us are going to learn so much from this conversation. I know you have so much to contribute to our field and to exercise science in general. So excited to hear what you have to say. But um, first, tell the people a little bit about yourself. Uh, yeah, my name is uh, Jeff Klein, and I'm currently the Associate Director in uh, the School of Biological and Health Systems Engineering at Arizona State, which is a fancy way of saying biomedical engineering. So um, if someone had told me 20 years ago I'd be working in a biomedical engineering program, I would have told them they were crazy because I started out as a psychology undergraduate and through a securities route ended up here in Arizona working with, uh, with engineers. And so my major interest in, uh, is neuroplasticity in general and uh, how to engineer or develop therapies to treat things like stroke traumatic brain injury and Parkinson's disease. Awesome. Yeah, it's it, it sounds more like a, uh, if you look at a map, it looks more like a witness protection program map than it does a, a career path. But uh, I started out as a, as a psych major, as an undergraduate, and learned about neuroplasticity for the first time a long time ago, and then went to work for a, a fellow by the name of Bill Greeno, who's since passed, and he was a world leader in anatomical plasticity and experience-dependent plasticity and learning. So I spent Four and a half years strapped to an electron microscope counting synapses in rat brains um, that had been given various types of experience. And that was really the beginning where, uh, you know, we, my PhD thesis showed that, you know, exercise versus skilled learning had different effects on the brain. Then I went to work for um, uh, Randy Nudo at um, the KU Medical Center where he was doing motor mapping. So I went from anatomy to physiology. And while I was there, he was just getting ready to publish what has now become one of the seminal papers in, in relating plasticity to recovery of function uh, in monkey brains. And I got, got to be interested in stroke. Um, so I then went off and got my first faculty position in Canada, uh, where I was born and raised, and began studying plasticity and stroke. And I ran into uh, a good friend of mine from high school who was a physical therapist, and I was telling him all about our rehabilitation and how it induced plasticity. And he said, well, I don't mean to be rude, but so what? And I said, that's, you know, that's a really good question. He goes, what does that buy me when I go to the clinic on Monday and I tell my students, or I tell my my, my patients rather, hey, guess what? Your brain's changing. They don't care. <laughs> they just want to be able to comb their hair and brush their teeth and, you know, pick up a fork. So I then decided, well, let's, how do we apply this? So I went to work with uh, Steve Kramer at uh, UC Irvine where I started to learn to speak the language of clinicians because I really had no idea. I felt like, to be honest, I felt like a fraud because I was studying stroke in rats and, and the beginning of my grants would always start out with it's the leading cause of you know, adult disability and we're gonna try and solve that, but I'd never actually worked with a stroke patient. So I wanted to find out what that was like. And uh, I went to three step in 2005, I guess that was sort of a career changing moment for me. Um, 
And then I moved to University of Florida, where I started working with several folks, some of which you're, you're familiar with, um, and worked at the Brain Rehab Center with people like Chris Sapienza, who I know you've had, have had on your podcast, and Jay Rosenbeck and folks like that. And uh, while I was there initially, uh, Leslie Gonzalez-Rothi, who was running the center, asked to challenge myself and my colleague, Teresa Jones, to write a paper on what are the principles of experience plasticity. And so Teresa and I sat down and went through the literature and we wrote this paper. And it turns out that it's the, of, of all the papers I've published, it's by far and away the number one cited paper. And it's simply just a review paper. Um, and it really took off. And, um, and a lot of people have used it to design you know, clinical experiments. And it's been very exciting to be part of that. But at the same time, a speech language pathologist joined my lab, Emily Plowman, who's now uh, a professor at uh, University of Florida. And she was interested in, well, how does, how does uh, different types of training affect uh, swallowing or oral, you know, or, or lingual function in animals? So, um, you know, it's very impressive. This is somebody with no animal research experience, has a PhD in you know, speech language pathology. And she came in the lab and, and I knew nothing about dysphagia. And so it was a lot of fun to learn about it and ran some experiments in, in an animal model of Parkinson's disease. And what we showed was that uh, different types of therapy, whether it be upper extremity or we call cranial motor or lingual training, uh, had different impacts on the brain and on, on behavior. And in fact, um, upper extremity was a lot easier to rehabilitate than oral lingual was. And that was an aha moment for me. So then we started to ask ourselves, well, why is that? And that's when I found out how incredibly complex swallowing is. I had no idea. So when I dove into the, the basic, you know, the, the inter, introductory sort of textbook type uh, papers and, and chapters and found out how incredibly uh, complex swallowing was and how the different neural systems control different phases. And I'm like, well, no wonder it's so hard to rehabilitate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot, lot going on. So that, that's, that's sort of the, 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 my dysphagia career. Once uh, Emily left the lab and went on to do her own thing, I let her you know, take that area of research and, and continue on with it. Um, and she has, and she's done a fantastic job over the last uh, 10 years or so. How neat. Cool. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I really liked what you said about, you know, you felt like a fraud because you were not actually treating patients. And I think there's so many clinicians that feel like frauds because we don't know all the research that there is to know, you know, and, and we're just sitting in front of these patients who are desperate for help and we're supposed to have all the answers and we don't. So... Right, and that's and if you, and if you look at the if you look at the, the research, there's a nice nice review paper by Nadine Connor uh, and her group, and uh, they went through and looked at all of the different types of therapies that are out there, and basically what they came up with is it's just a potpourri of of, of studies, and it's really hard to tell because the dosage. Um, and, and the timing and the, the type of therapies, oh, it's all across the map, and so we we don't have that that guide yet. We don't have that, that, that recipe book yet that mixes all of the proper, you know, behavioral signals that we talk about in that, in that paper. And, and, uh, and on top of that, the other problem is that dysphagia is, is much like upper extremity dysfunction is, has multiple causes. Uh, they can be acute stroke, you know, traumatic brain injury. They can be neurodegenerative or autoimmune, autoimmune disorders, but that progress over time. Uh, and so that's really important to know. And what we've learned from the upper extremity work, and so upper extremity stroke work, it typically, it sort of leads the way. It's, it's typically more mature as a science or, as, or as, a, as a field than other areas. And so what we've discovered is that simply combining the, the, the right 
elements of those behavioral signals and plasticity we talked about, like intensity and repetition, that's just not that not enough. It has, there's, there's more to it. And what we've learned, and to quote my good friend, Steve Kramer, is uh, we need to take a peek under the hood, which is find out why, why is it that these, that these symptoms can happen? So you can get the same sort of symptoms with very different underlying neural dysfunctions. So it's almost like saying, oh, you have, you have headache disease. Well, you can get a headache for a lot of reasons, dehydration, altitude, et cetera. And so the treatment of those symptoms may actually depend on the causes of those symptoms. And that's something that, that at least in upper extremity, we've started to look at by looking at things like, where is the, where's the damage? Um, how large is the damage? Uh, and looking for biomarkers to try and guide it. And people like Kathy Stenier and Winston Biblo in New Zealand have come up with an algorithm that uses impairment behavioral assessments, neurophysiological and anatomical assessments to guide to guide therapy. And so I think that's the, the future is look, individualizing therapy based on not just their impairments, which is what we've done historically. And that's to no fault of the therapist because we haven't had the science behind it yet to say, like you said, it's frustrating. What do we do? But but we are getting there. We're starting to learn some some things um, that are they're going to help guide the way. I think the way that I think I think the curriculum for you know speech language pathology, for example, or physical and occupational therapy is going to change dramatically over the next decade or so. I think they're going to start to learn some things that that are not being taught now. The underlying causes, um, biomarkers like genetics and things like that. Yeah. Awesome. I hope so. And then those of us that have been out working for forever are just going to still feel lost. So, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the goal is to make you envious. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I wish, I wish yes. I would have known that years ago. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, but I love, I love what you said about, you know, the, the way of the future might be these sort of algorithm things with, but, and, and I think what's so, I think what makes a lot of speech pathologists nervous is that sometimes we just give these such prescriptive exercise plans, basically. And it's like, honestly, a monkey could do this. Honestly, a monkey could say, you have this, 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 and this symptom. Okay, do this, this, and this, and this exercise, and voila, you're healed. And and we, those of us that see patients know that's not the reality by any means, that there is so much individually that goes into what we have to do to get buy-in from our patients, to get feedback, to get inherence. And, you know, really all the, all the things you talk about in, in your paper, all the principles of neuroplasticity. And I think what really changed, changed my brain with the way I thought about that is how all those things are so important to really the long-term gain of the patient, because we can give them all the exercises in the world, but if they're not going to do them, if they're not interested, if they're not, you know, invested, then it's, completely pointless. And you, and you really hit on a point. So one of the things I started to do after um, I moved from Canada was to spend more time in clinics with, so I went to three step uh, back in 2005 and I went there with the sole purpose of finding out what the recipe book was for therapists to treat stroke. So I could make my animal models better. And every time I asked somebody, they sort of chuckled and looked at me like, what? And so I got as many answers as I, as I, as I asked people, I realized that was the beginning of my understanding of, of how, confusing all of this stuff is. And it really, and I get asked at, at conferences all the time when you're doing question and answer. I have a patient who has these symptoms. What should I do? And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is what, this is not what, this is not what I do. It's, you know, I can tell you about the basic science, but it's the, it's the skill of, of the therapist in the clinic. And so they did a study in, in, uh, in Canada as part of the Canadian Stroke Network where they, they surveyed therapists and asked them, what's the number one factor that, dis- that's, that contributes to how you treat an, an, a specific patient? And they gave them a bunch of, of um, options. Do you know what the number one answer was? 
Would you, would you want to guess? No. Uh, it's because that's the way we do it here. Yes. God, I should have yes. guessed. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> uh, they, have, they have therapists who say things like, I've been doing this for 25 years. I know what that's, I'm doing. Well, and, that, and that's what we get in our field all the time is, well, I've been, this is how I've been doing it for 30 years. And it's like, no. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, after seeing so many patients, there, there's something in there, like the, the skill of the, the skill of the of the therapist to look at a patient and, but if you could increase their size of their toolbox by saying, Hey, this is what causes it. Um, and we know that in that particular cause, even though symptoms and impairments look the same, this is the better treatment option. Um, and I think that's, that's where we're heading is to give is to provide the therapist with more tools to use to make clinical decisions. Yeah. 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 And I think that's exactly it. I think the hard part too, is just admitting that crap, maybe what I've been doing for 20 years wasn't the best and there is a different way to do things. And, and I think that's where our profession has to get a little bit better in, in saying, you know, Hey, we have these great researchers that are doing wonderful work and we have to implement what they're, what they're telling us and what they're showing. And there's a, there's a real, there's a real disconnect. And it's one of the things that I learned at three step, I think there was like 4,000 people there and there were three or four basic scientists that were there. <laughs> um, myself and Randy Nudo and Mike Merznick, I think we're, 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 were the three basic scientists that were there, but anyway, but but we write these we write these papers, and I always joke and say they get highly cited by each other, like this little group where we all cite each other's papers, but it never makes it into the hands of the clinicians, and so it, I think it's it's on us as basic scientists to write papers that are palatable, that are that you don't need a degree in neuroscience to be able to read this paper, and there's there's a needs to be a translation there, so I actually wrote a book about eight years ago. It was written like that. So it's written in the first person, like we're having a beer and we're talking about like we're doing right now. And so that's the way that the book is written. But I think that needs to happen more often with papers so that therapists can understand what, what are they talking about? You know, what does this yeah. mean? Well, and, and that was a yeah, that was a conversation I had actually with a friend a few weeks ago. And and I just said, that, you know, the, the tough part is there's just so much research that I want to know and I want to learn. And she was like, well, Tracy, I went to school for five years. I got a PhD. I learned how to read research. And I was like, Oh, I guess, I guess you kind of did. Uh, and and it, it took the pressure off me. And, and I guess knowing that I didn't, I, I never was taught how to, how to read research, how to dissect research, how to look at an animal model study. And how does that relate to my patient? Does right. it, is it worth right. my time? Right. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's, and that's hard to do on top of everything else you're doing during the day, uh, you know, as and people who have a practice and that's, and that's, just a small group of, of, of therapists. I mean, a lot of therapists just go in and they, they do what they're told and they, but you know, there's another group that goes to conferences and, and reads and, you know, tries to advance their, you know, listens to your podcast, for example, you know, trying to advance the way they deliver treatment. It's, you know, it's been, I guess we, the paper we wrote was in 2008. So it was at 13 years ago. So, and I can tell you um, what we've learned since then. One is, as I mentioned, that it's not just, the just having the right mixture of, of those behavioral signals. And the other is that um, we need to start really paying attention to um, what's going on in the brain and using that to, to try and guide and guide us. And that's, that's, that's a hard thing to do, but I think the upper extremity stroke work is starting to lead the way aphasia as well. Um, there are now algorithms that can be used based on fMRI data, et cetera, to try and help the patients. But the problem is a lot of these things, uh, clinicians, you don't have it. You don't have a, a, an MRI in your in your <laughs> in your clinic. You, you don't have a TMS system in your clinic necessarily to to try and to do these things. So but that that, that you know, the logistics of that, I think, needs to be needs to be figured out. But the other thing is, and, and this is true across whether it's 
it's upper extremity, lower extremity, what have you, you know, is that this is a, a lifelong challenge. And so historically, stroke patients would come in, spend some time at the hospital, see the neurologist, uh, but then that the amount of time they spend with the neurologist actually drops off logarithmically afterwards, and they're sent home. So what other medical you know, condition um, is like that? If you have high blood pressure, you come in and you get checked. And if it's not right, they adjust your dosage. You know, and if you have diabetes, you, you're you're constantly being being monitored. That's not true in uh, in, in things like you know uh, neurological disorders like stroke and, and and Parkinson's disease. They send you home. Good luck. Um, and I think I think we need to do a better job of monitoring and having patients come in for tune-ups, if you will, or having them monitored remotely telemedicine. Um, I think those are good some advances where therapists, you know, like yourself could sit like we are right now, I'm talking literally across the country. I'm in California right now. Um, and you have that interaction with the patient and have them perform things and, you know, try and keep track of how they're doing, you know, on a monthly or, you know, bi-monthly basis or whatever, but they need to be monitored and, and treatment adjusted and, and, and get them motivated. That was the number one thing I learned hanging out with clinicians is, what we called in the paper salience uh, is if they're not motivated, forget it. Everything else goes out the window. Yeah. If it's not yeah, interesting, yeah. it all goes out the window. Yeah. yeah. It, it's funny you use the word tune up because I've used that with quite a few patients before. And, and, and it's true. You know, how many times do we, you know, I would get called in to see patients when they have aspiration pneumonia or they're all of a sudden coughing, choking constantly. And, you know, you go in and they're like, oh, well, I, you know, I have Parkinson's disease. I have, you know, this laundry list of comorbidities. And, you know, they're like, how did this happen? And, and it's like, well, it's, you know, it's been going on for years. And I'm like, you, you kind of sort of just need a tune yeah. up, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but same thing, if they were being followed more closely throughout all of this, we probably wouldn't get to the point of now they have aspiration pneumonia. They've had, you know, hospital stay. Now they're in skilled rehab. You know, we wouldn't have this whole downfall. Yeah, exactly. Monitoring. And we had the technologies there. I mean, uh, one of the things that's that one of the things that's come out of this whole pandemic is our ability to interact remotely uh, has improved. And that's going to change a lot of things, everything from education to, to therapy. So no, my, my students would disagree. They hate it. They hate Zoom. A lot of professors. We all we all hate Zoom. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, the, you know, but some of the remote technologies have advanced because of it. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think there's been so many things that have been wonderful. And, and, and it's and same thing, I think. You know, I just was on the call with a doctor from Arizona for my son. You know, I mean, that's amazing that I, you know, don't have to hop a flight to Arizona just to get treatment for my son, but that we're able to connect and and things like that. So I think it's definitely got a huge upside. And people like uh, Steve Kramer and others are doing uh, tele-rehab. So set up a system in the, in the, in the, uh, at the person's home and they do the exercises that they're supposed to be doing or, and they're monitored remotely by a physical therapist who sits down and looks and says, okay, we're going to tweak the what you're doing now based on what you're doing and you don't have to be in the clinic and it's much less expensive and 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 you, you can reach a wider number of patients so it should, it should if it's done right it should have a, a significant impact on how we treat these patients yeah i guess it, what i keep coming back to is there's so many you know you can't teach a old dog new tricks and and i think there's so many people that are resistant to that model you know and i just don't know how we get people you know, there's so much that we can do with our patients that we, it doesn't just have to be sitting face to face, you know, all the time, especially, you know, especially like the, you said with the salience and the motivation, there's so many people that are motivated by technology. I do this stupid little workout app and I don't really even like the workouts, but the dang yeah. app, like keeps me so motivated yeah. that I'm, yeah. I like keep doing it every yeah. day. And I'm, but so I just think of that with my patients, like if they had something that kept them that motivated. Yeah. 
No, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, like a words with friends app that, <laughs> that's, <it's, laughs> but yeah, I think it's, I think it's going to change. And we, you know, I, we talked about this, I was on a steering committee with uh, APTA a few years ago on, on how to change the, the only way to really change is to, is to, is to create a new uh, group, a new crop of students that are trained like that. And so you have to change the curriculum, um, which is not trivial, but if you slowly do that and, you know, when with, with evidence-based um, practice coming through, um, tweaking the curriculum. So when the students come out, they are, you know, they're, they're thinking about the world differently and they can, they can make their own decisions. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great point. So it's sort of a grassroots approach to, to changing yeah. the way therapy is delivered. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, let's dive into some neuroplasticity stuff, Jeff. Okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, I guess let's, let's kind of start from the beginning. So what is it? Why does it matter? So you're talking about it. Yeah, it's a good question. So when I, when I went to, um, I started writing the book I was telling you about, I, I tried to find a definition and what I found was just like when I was at three step, uh, everybody I asked had their own definition, but it was always related to their work. So it's always contaminated by what they're working on. So they'll say things like it's changes in the cortex during development. It's changes in uh, synaptic strength, electrical stimulation. That's the, that's their definition. So the definition that that I came up with, which I think is good because it can uh, help someone like yourself and me have a conversation about it. It's just any change in neuron structure or function that you can observe either at the individual or the population level. So when you define it like that, it's a very broad description, but it encompasses all the different types of, of plasticity. And I think we've got pretty good evidence now um, over the last several decades that um, that plasticity is necessary and sufficient for normal learning in the intact brain, but it's also uh, important for, for relearning or rehabilitation in the, in, the, in the damaged brain. And so the whole idea is the way I like to think about it and explain it to my students is you have these behavioral signals that are important that we're, we've been figuring out, and then those drive neural signals in the brain. So things like pattern activity, transmitter release, growth factors, the neurobiological stuff. And that leads to uh, functional reorganization of the brain, which leads to learn, you know, learn behavior or uh, an improvement in, in motor function. So by understanding the mechanisms, that neural and behavioral portion, can we then come up with more optimal, more effective treatments. And one of the hurdles, as I'm sure you know, is that because of healthcare policies, that the amount of time that a therapist gets to spend with a patient is often very limited. So can we come up with performance enhancers, for example? You know, can we, can we have the, the Lance Armstrong of, of, of therapy, you know, blood doping, call it what you want. Um, we, call it, we, we call them adjuvant therapies, things like brain stimulation um, that, that can be used to try and enhance and, and, and increase the impact of that limited amount of time that people um, often have. And so there's some pretty good data out there that's starting to develop on um, lots of brain simulation studies, um, some in dephagia, uh, some in upper extremity stroke. And what we're learning is that certain types of, we're not there yet, but I think the, the I think the crew, I, you know, I lecture to one of the PT schools in, uh, in Phoenix, and I tell them, I say, look, in your career, you're going to walk into the clinic one day and there's going to be a brain simulator in there of some form. And you're going to have to learn how to use it because it's because there's something there. We just haven't quite figured out yet what the parameters are, what does, what, 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 how do you apply certain parameters given the, the etiology of a disease state that the person's in, that kind of thing. So that's the goal. And I think the, the, one of the reasons I joined an engineering department because it was because I think historically we've been looking for drugs. So, and there's a multi-billion dollar list of failed drugs that we were going to give, give the patient a drug and train them. And, and it was going to help. I mean, there's a couple of drugs out there actually that, that are showing promise, fluoxetine, so 
is one of them. But for the most part, drugs, have, they, they work beautifully in animals and they just don't work <laughs> in these large scale clinical trials. And so I think, I think things like non-invasive brain stimulation will probably be the first major step that we take towards uh, improving plasticity and pairing that with, and this is the important part, is pairing that with the appropriate therapy. And that's why, you know, I get worried sometimes that we're putting the, the cart before the horse because um, we don't know what the right therapy is yet, first of all. And then, then once you do, then if you want to enhance that, you start layering on these adjuvant therapies, you know, brain stimulation and what have you. So um, I think we're both fields are working, you know, trying to figure out what the right answer is to each. And hopefully in the future, we'll see these adjuvant therapies like brain stimulation enhancing uh, the impact of, 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 a, of a proven therapy for a proven uh, disease uh, and a proven set of impairments. So you can see how complicated the whole thing becomes. Yeah, yeah. That. No, yeah. It's, it's so fascinating you said that. Like I said, that doctor I was just talking to was talking about getting some sort of like Vegas nerve stimulator for my son. And I was like, what kind of world are we living in? And I was like, cool, but I don't like he's five. I don't know. But, but, you know, and, and I'm glad you said that because it definitely does look like that's, and that was sort of his, his interpretation too. He's like, I don't, I'm not throwing a drug at a five-year-old. I, you know, I, I don't want to treat him with drugs. And yeah, it's, it's the, so it's funny you mentioned the Vegas nerve. It's something my labs become interested in. And so the way I explain it to um, the students is that your, your brain has its own pharmacy <laughs> and it's, you know, and uh, the vagus nerve actually activates that pharmacy endogenously. So you're not just bathing the entire brain in whatever drug it is you've given them, whether it's you know, Prozac, Fluoxetine, you know, whatever. Um, you're having the, the brain simulate itself. And it, it's, it's, it's almost too good to be true right now what we're seeing with the vagus nerve stimulation stuff. It seems to cure everything. Um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but it is, it has been improved, you know, approved by the FDA to treat epilepsy, depression, things like that. Uh, so there's, it's a good example though of, of how engineering and specific circuit stimulation rather than bathing the brain in, in drugs is probably a, a better approach. Yeah. Um, so um, I do wish there was more of a marriage of biomedical engineering and dysphagia at this point, because I feel like there's so much that could be, you know, and I had an engineer on a few a month or two ago and he's like, I'm kind of the only dude I know doing this right now. And I'm like, they need more, find more, because I think, you know, that work is so fascinating. And I think there's so much that can be done with swallowing that we just haven't, you know, scratched the surface yet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's getting it's getting, you know, I, I have a slide I like to show um is it's somebody in a swimming pool holding up a bar of soap or is they're holding their hand up like they're drowning and then the person on the on the side is holding a bar of soap out and i always think of you know that's how clinical and basic science has been for so long is like we don't we hear some soap i don't know will this help I don't, you know i don't know but but it's starting to you know we're starting to interact more and i think how lovely <laughs> yeah it's it's taking some time i mean we speak different languages and we work in different we work in different buildings on campus you know those kind of things but it's starting to happen. And part of it is through NIH's uh, initiative to see more interdisciplinary collaboration and, and mechanistic sort of grads. So um, I think it's it's happening. We have in our, our program, we've got six or eight neural engineers that are all working on various uh, disorders awesome. uh, with clinicians. We all have clinical partners. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So That's great. Wonderful. Fingers crossed that we're, we'll, we'll hit on something that will be proven through uh, clinical trials. So. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. I think... Um, Depending on where, you know, depending on, get back to what we were just talking about collaborations, depending on where um, people are located and the access they have to research universities uh, or even industry, um, you know, clinicians should go and knock, knock on, on doors and say, hey, I'm interested in, in some of these things. And, um, you know, a bigger example is when um, Emily Plowman joined my lab and 
wanted to study dysphagia and I had to look the word up <laughs> and then learn about swallowing. And so often, you know, people, researchers will respond and say, hey, that's a new direction. This sounds really interesting. I'm interested in, and it's something that's not being done. So it should be, it should be done. So don't, you know, don't, don't be scared to reach out to, to researchers in your area and say, hey, I have an idea for, for a study. What, what, do you, what do you think? I think you'll find most of them will be very receptive to it. I feel like that's a common theme with most people that I interview. They said the same thing. They're like, oh, she just came and knocked on my door and I had no idea what dysphagia was. And here we yeah. are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's <laughs> a very common theme, which is funny. Yeah. Sad, but funny. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, you can't learn it all. <laughs> no, no, of course not. Yeah. Of course not. It, it's just, it's wild to me that it's just not, not known about, you know, on a, on a grander scale, you know, that people just don't even realize it's an issue. Or, or that the fact that it's associated with so many different neurological disorders. I mean, there's more neurological disorders with it than there is without. And it's, it's, you know, and, and when you find out that it's it, how devastating it is for people, people focus on, you know, a, corticospinal upper motor you know, upper extremity lower motor lower extremity people forget how devastating it is to be able not to be able to speak properly or swallow and you know aspiration pneumonia being you know as lethal as it is um, so and a lot of a lot of um, basic scientists that study plasticity and rehabilitation uh, aren't, aren't even aware of of the importance of this field and i think they, they need to be and i think your pod your podcast will go a long way to do that i think though so like well, that's thanks. great yeah thanks jeff i think how do you think we get more you know, people like yourself. And like I said, the engineers and things just, just more involved with dysphagia. Do you think it's really just grassroots, like clinicians knocking on university well, doors? I think I just... you have to, I mean, the, 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 the sad truth of it is maybe it's not a sad truth, but the truth of it is you have to be incentivized. So faculty researchers are under pressure from various different angles, one of which is research. So getting a grant. So I think, um, you know, people need to push for, grant opportunities through NIH, et cetera, that, that are focused on particular areas. So, you know, a call for proposals for um, an integration of engineering and the treatment of dysphagia would be a, you know, would be a good one. That gets people attention, people's attention is when they can fund their labs that way and, you know, and, and do it that. But that's, that's, I think that's the, the funding has to be there, whether it's through private industry or it's through, or it's through uh, federal agencies, but it has to be there. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, you bet. So I think we, I think what you guys need is a, an ambassador or a, or a champion to go and and or or, or groups to go and and maybe this is happening right now. Um, go and, and and fight fight for research dollars to get that cross that, that cross discipline interaction. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah. What? So I guess I'll make one more point, um, and it has to do with with clinical trials and what we've learned from the upper extremity clinical trials, and they're. They're incredibly expensive, incredibly difficult to do. And what we often see is this phase one works, phase two works, phase three, everything just you know, falls apart. And part of it is because I'm not sure that these large scale clinical trials are really the answer. And it's because of the variability of patients and they all get put into this one group or you know, three groups uh, and the causes of, of the impairments they're looking at are wild. And you see these large scale clinical trials that fail. And the NIH says, okay, nope, that treatment's no good. And in, at least in one case that I've been involved in, if you go through and you data mine and you look at the specifics of individual patients, then you see an effect of the treatment, but that's not how it works through the FDA. <laughs> uh, you need to have you know, a phase three clinical trial that shows that it works for everybody. So I think we need to start focusing in on smaller clinical trials and individual cases 
and and what's working and having a, a way of disseminating that information. I'm not sure exactly how to do that yet, but with our ability to, to communicate remotely, it shouldn't be that difficult to do. So, you know, somebody having a podcast on going over a research paper of the latest clinical trial on dyspatia and explaining it in terms um, that um, the average clinician can understand without having to be a PhD in neuroscience. And, you know, so and directing them to the paper, that kind of thing. So and that, that's the kind of thing I think that needs to happen. And we need to get away from these huge, large scale clinical trials. Uh, I think I think they're just discouraging if anything uh, at all. So it's so fascinating to hear you say that, because I, I feel like that's something that people talk about in our field is as being a big negative. You know, we're, we don't have all these huge RCTs. We don't have all these huge, you know, randomized controlled trials that they think that that sort of waters down the research that we do have. And I couldn't disagree anymore because I think just you, you can't really compare apples to oranges sometimes with, with different patients. And I think it's a real, it's a real disservice to think that we can lump 5,000 patients in that all have varying comorbidities and expect to get the same results. And, yeah. and you know, it's, it's, I mean, individualized medicine is, it's become a thing that's, that's important and it's, and it's for a good reason. And so one of the areas that's really influencing medicine is uh, genetics. So, you know, we, we mapped the human genome in 2002, 2003. We've got all this data on how the relationship between genes and certain diseases or risk factors. And now, for example, uh, we found out that depending on your genotype, you could be someone who's taking an opiate, for example. So you go to the doctor and you've got back pain. They give you Percocet say, here, take 0.5 milligrams twice a day. Some people um, that has zero effect on other people it has a 200% effect on depending on your genotype. So what, doc, what, what large universities are doing now is genotyping people and prescribing medications based on those genotypes. And I think if you play that forward towards what we're talking about, well, we now know that certain genes are associated with certain uh, different uh, capacities for influencing plasticity and even uh, looking at their ability to recover in response to certain uh, behaviors. So that's, that's truly individual because they're looking at, they're looking at your DNA and, and making decisions possibly eventually based on your DNA. So it's not just the impairments and the causes, but also what's your basic biology like and how does that influence your response given your, your disease? And that's all lost in these huge trials, just like you said, you can't compare them. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's yeah. where we need to go. I love that getting down to a real granular level, but I mean, it makes so much sense. Yeah. Who knew? Yeah. But it's a ton of work to get there. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what we're here for, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, we I, just I, expect I, you guys will figure it out sometimes. Yeah. So. I, I call it job. I call it job security. <laughs> that's a truth. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. All right. Any final thoughts, Jeff? Anything else you'd like to share with the people? Just wanted to say thank you for inviting me. I think it's it's uh, it's a real privilege to be able to talk to hopefully your listeners, most of them are clinicians, to get a chance to speak with clinicians because I think that's one of the things that our basic scientists don't do enough of is, is to speak with, with uh, the clinical folks that are on the front lines that aren't in the laboratory but are in a clinic. Um, I think, that's I think vice versa. I don't think enough clinicians listen to what the researchers have to say. So it works well. So thank you. No, no, thank you. All right. Well, thank you. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. 
Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.